This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Oh, hi. Hello there and welcome to, I promise, the last episode covering the Orphic tradition for now. (laughs) You know, I originally planned for this to just be the one episode. (laughs) Like I would do one on Orpheus, one on the Orphic tradition and bam, done. Ha ha ha. Anyway, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I'm your host, Liv. Almost forgot that part. That's how wrapped up in Orpheus I have become. How is this tradition both so fragmentary and mysterious and also so absolutely jam-packed with weird theories and bizarre fragments of stories? It is my official nemesis, and after this episode I may just go back to my original stance of doing my best to ignore any and all things Orphic. It has only brought me pain. (laughs) And okay, fine. Extreme entertainment and fascination because it's fucking weird and wonderful in its own infuriating way. Which is, obviously... Why we have one more episode on the subject. Because it turns out I didn't even get to the fragments of Rhapsodies, let alone the hymns and those dang Underworld instruction tablets. So what's in store for today's episode? Well, we all come from a cosmic egg. The Orphic tradition has a thing for incest in a way that says, hold my beer, to the stories of brother-sister romances in the Hesiodic Theogony. And honestly, so much more. But for real, if you thought last week's episode on the conception of Zagreus, Zeus's incestuous relationship with Persephone, was particularly gross even for Greek myth, 
Just you wait because it turns out Orphic tradition really loves egregiously disturbing incest stories. So I guess trigger warning. How is this my actual job? What a fucking trip. This is episode 180. Born from a cosmic egg, you say. More Orphic tradition horrors and oddities. In that first episode on the Orphic tradition, I know I really inundated you with the background on it. Notions of the tradition itself, theories, and scholarly debates. We talked about that earliest Orphic source that we have, the Derveni papyrus, and what it does and does not contain. But there are so many fragmentary bits and pieces that I want to share with you, along with some of the hymns themselves. And the so-called Orphic gold tablets, which are sometimes debated as being actually Orphic, but are cool and interesting either way. I'm going to try to keep it to mostly fun stuff in today's episode. The bizarre introductions in the varied alternate theogonies and beyond. Still, this is the Orphic tradition and it is inherently full of baffling fragments and unanswered questions. So I'm doing my best. Fortunately, the details we do have from some of these alternate theogonies really keep it interesting. Because truly, the Orphic tradition was very obsessed with rewriting the world's origin. That's what seems to be the through line across the thousand or so years of this tradition of rewriting, well, tradition. And by the end of this series, I swear the word tradition will have lost all meaning for me. The oldest Orphic theogonies, which, yes, there are many disparate fragments of older theogonies departing from the traditional Hesiodic idea and introducing all these odd Orphic details. So the, the oldest ones all begin with night in place of Hesiod's chaos. Everything begins with night, that primordial goddess Nyx. But later, these ideas transform even more and depart even further from the Hesiodic ideas that would have been so broadly accepted across the ancient Greek world. These later ideas that are entirely unique, so bizarrely different, they really just took all of those weird ideas of Hesiod and Homer, the ones the whole of the Greek world was familiar with, and like I said, said, ultimately, hold my beer. <laughs> there are new gods, new ideas, new and bizarre notions of familial relationships, including way, way more divine incest. And yes, first and foremost, there is a cosmic egg. According to one of the most preserved Orphic theogonies, called the Hieronymen Theogony, there is this idea of the, yes, cosmic egg. Now, the Hieronymen Theogony is in itself weird and confusing, <laughs> just like the rest of the Orphic tradition, but in this case, it appears to be an ancient theogony, though I haven't found a good explanation of just how old it could be, but we only have pieces of it because two 6th century Neoplatonists philosophers talked about and wrote down details from the poem in their arguments. The poem itself is lost. What this means is the bits and pieces we have are filtered through the lenses that these men were using to discuss them. They likely included some details, 
and excluded others and, and may have even been talking about more theogonies than just this one, but we will never know. And one of these 6th century CE Neoplatonists, a man named Athenagoras, was a Christian apologist writing about these pagan notions from generations before his time, and he is pretty explicitly disturbed by the Greek gods and looking to slander them. So it's often tough to sort out what exactly is coming from where and, and what is being influenced by his own early Christian bias. Honestly, this is in itself where my interest lies, but it's also baffling. So I won't dwell on it. We'll get to what he actually says. In this theogony, the world began with water, hydros, and mud. In this mud and water, Gaia solidified into what we know, into Mother Earth. Then Gaia and water produced another deity, an Orphic deity, Kronos. That is, Kronos with a C-H in English and a he in Greek. Kronos as in time, as in chronology. This was the god of time. Now, the other Kronos is also the god of time in a sense, but when this Orphic tradition comes along, they make it more explicit, and then they have this Kronos with a CH in a different spot in the origin timeline, and he doesn't have the same like negative connotations, it seems, as far as I can tell. But then they're often described as essentially the same. That said, the ancient Greek spelling of their names was just as different as it is in English. It's confusing. Uh, this Kronos was a dragon, serpent heads growing off of a bull and a lion and a god's face in the middle and wings. Can you can you picture it? No, neither can I. Some weird shit. Regardless, this was time, the god and concept of time and time. I'm going to keep calling him time to avoid confusion with castrating Kronos with a K. So time coupled up with another deity, Ananke a personification of inevitability or compulsion. Together, they had three more primordial deities, Ether, the air above the sky, Chaos, and Erebos, darkness. And then, well, Time also had another child, or rather, he generated an egg amongst these three newly created concepts. And from this egg was born another brand new deity, an Orphic deity called Fannies. Fannies is also called Protogonos, firstborn. Because while they aren't the first deity, they are deemed as the firstborn. And then there's some huge clout that comes with this. Fannies is a big deal in the Orphic tradition. And from a character standpoint, Fannies, it seems, is, is a kind of intersex deity or even genderless, whatever term you want to use to describe them. They are beyond the binary. And also, well, kind of monstrous, which I don't think is a commentary on this, to be very clear. It's just is coming along with this whole new deity form. Fannies is described as having, and I'm changing the masculine pronouns here because I like, I like this genderless, quote, Golden wings on their shoulders, bull's heads growing upon his flanks, and on their head a monstrous serpent presenting the appearance of all kinds of animals' forms. Fanny's is weird, much like Kronos with a CH. From there we learn that Uranos also came into existence, possibly alongside 
Gaia, even though she was already there. And, and from there, many of the same events of Hesiod then take place. Now I say many because there is one glaring and gross variation when it comes to the succession of the gods. And it ties in with that Dionysian Zagreus that I introduced last week. See, the usual, the Hesiodic succession generally exists with Oranos to Kronos with a K to Zeus and down the line from there. But in this Orphic take, and similarly in the Derveni Theogony that I mentioned last week or the week before, Zeus, well, Zeus wants to have sex with his mother, Rhea, like very explicitly wants to have sex with his mother, except also this Rhea is directly connected with Demeter as both are earth goddesses regardless though it appears that she is definitely his mother in this case and he definitely wants to have sex with her in relation to that well relation zeus transforms himself into a snake in order to have sex with rhea slash demeter sound familiar because yeah then she gives birth to persephone zeus's daughter and his sister and then Yeah, then Zeus transforms himself into a snake to have sex with Persephone, who gives birth to the Orphic Dionysus from last week. Zeus does not have sex with the Orphic Dionysus, and I don't know if I want to get into too deep into judgmental rabbit holes here because I feel like that's just asking for trouble. But I will at least point out that the first character gendered mostly male in this line does not get to be part of the incest circle with Zeus. Instead, it's more that swallowing circle. (laughs) What did I tell you about excessively bizarre and gross, let alone confusing? look at these changes in this Orphic origin of things. We have night as the progenitor of everything in many cases, which is kind of fun and basically harmless. We have this introduction of explicitly Kronos with a CH, time, who will eventually become conflated with Kronos with a K, even though they're kind of similar or the same, which is why there are visualizations of father time with a sickle. This is a late invention when the two gods were kind of smushed together really explicitly. Still, it's cool how those things work. Okay, off the tangent, Liv. We have time. And then we have this being sprung sprung from an egg, Fannies. This genderless, somewhat monstrous idea. They are often depicted as human too, visually, I should say. Just in the description in the text, it's bizarre. This original description. Certainly not human. And then, well, then we have the super fun cyclical incest committed by our friend Zeus. What a guy. And I should point out, there are implications here that go beyond just horrifying incest. Let's be fair. And that's what I spoke about in previous episodes on this, too. It isn't like they were making some kind of relationship commentary here or even considering the ramifications of Zeus's actions from that standpoint. It's super symbolic. It's not meant to be gross like it is to us. These acts make Zeus even more of a supreme god when he creates this kind of cyclical coupling and procreation leading to more powerful gods. It's really, it's symbolic more than it is any kind of commentary on familial relationships. Those are incidental. But even still, I mean, it's pretty gross. The gods are weird. 
being divine is weird. But let's just push right past that horror show addition to the origin of things and, and return to both Fanny's, the Protagonos, and the Cosmic Egg. Now, again, all of this is coming from a whole collection of tiny fragments, like little references to bits and pieces over at least hundreds of years of writing, possibly closer to a thousand years. <laughs> Through these bits and pieces, though, we learn a few interesting things. First, in the Derveni Papyrus, that earliest record we have of this Orphic tradition, we also learn that there was another act of swallowing. We talked about the implications of swallowing one's children and or parents' genitals. You know, the usual. Anyway, Zeus, it seems, in this case, swallows Fanny's at some point, which again is this additional power move on the part of Zeus, because it, in many instances of this Orphic Theogony's, Fanny's is that protagonos, the firstborn. They're a primordial powerhouse. And so then that passes down to Zeus. And in another fragment, what's often called the Epicurus fragment, still more evidence on the Orphic tradition, we get a more explicit explanation of how the earth and the sky came together from that cosmic egg that birthed Fanny's. Here, quote, the wind encircling the egg serpent fashion like a wreath or a belt that then began to construct nature. As it tried to squeeze all the matter with great force, it divided the world into two hemispheres, Uranus and Gaia, the sky and earth. So we get this very specifically described act that creates this earth and sky. And then there are other moments, too, where Fanny's is explicitly connected with the more ancient notion of Eros. The Eros that appears in Hesiod's Theogony. The older Eros. Not the one we think of as Cupid. The child of Aphrodite and Ares, maybe. But the primordial Eros. The very existence of love and procreation that comes at the very beginning of time. It seems to me that would be a good way to cement this Orphic Fannies into the older stories that were known across the Greek world. Like, if you want your new tradition to stick, you can't have it be entirely foreign to the one that is already deeply, deeply ingrained in the culture. So instead, you make these like seemingly subtle adjustments to that existing idea or in just invent new additions to connect with those old ideas and kind of like slot them in. The idea of the cosmic egg appears in Orphic poetry, as I've just told you, poetry which would have come probably no earlier than the Hellenistic period, that is maybe the 3rd century BCE, but actually a similar idea first appears in a comedy by Aristophanes, that playwright you know from my episodes on the Lysistrata and the Frogs. So scholars debate whether this means that Aristophanes is referencing a distinct Orphic theogony that doesn't survive, or if he's just making stuff up. But either way, he's certainly referencing at least part of some kind of story that his audience would have been aware of, specifically because he was a satirist. He was always writing satire based on current events like the Peloponnesian War and the Lysistrata, or famous people of his time like Euripides and Aeschylus in The Frogs. So whatever Aristophanes is satirizing in this moment of the birds, we know that his audience would have fami been familiar with it. So he didn't—he couldn't have invented this idea of the cosmic egg. That said, we also can't tell what is based on an actual story from his time and what is him inventing something for satirical purposes, which once again opens up so many questions about the Orphic tradition from the classical period when Aristophanes was writing. Since most of the surviving Orphic poetry comes from much later, but so what was existed back then? 
That is all to say, this isn't a confirmation that the egg was Orphic when Aristophanes wrote it. It could have been related to more of the Leda and Zeus with the egg. Or, or that it proves anything about the timeline for this Orphic theogony. But as it's referred to in Meisner's book, it is a possible trace of the Orphic tradition as far back as Aristophanes. Like a hint that maybe it went back that far. Look at me rambling about ideas and theories once more. Back to the egg. In Aristophanes' birds, which I won't get into beyond this egg, we'll leave that play for a whole other time, it introduces an alternate theogony. So he says, quote, First, there was chaos and night, black Erebus and wide Tartarus, but neither earth nor air nor sky existed. In Erebus's boundless bosom, first of all, black-winged night produced an egg, a wind egg. So you can see the really explicit similarities to those pieces I just shared, even though those are coming from hundreds of years after Aristophanes. And he goes on to say that from this egg, essentially, everything else was born. Now, Aristophanes is writing a comedy about birds here, so the egg is not irrelevant in that sense, but it is also this really explicit idea that comes in later Orphic mythologies, which leaves people to question whether Aristophanes really could be working off of some kind of Orphic tradition here. The question probably can never be answered, though. Like, there are lots of theories on what else in this version of the beginning of things does and does not mirror later Orphic ideas. Even more interesting, though, is the way this idea of the world springing from an egg also mirrors many other mythologies, including Phoenician, Semitic, Persian, and Vedic, in ancient India, even. So there are so many possibilities here with this unanswerable question of... Is Aristophanes taking this from an Orphic tradition that's now lost? And if he is, is that tradition based on ideas from the east of Greece? Or is he simply taking from these similar mythologies from the east of Greece without the Orphic tradition? And if he's doing that, does that mean that the Athenians, if not the Greeks more broadly, like were aware of all these concepts and open to hearing about them in their comedies? Generally, the Orphic tradition has a lot of roots in Eastern mythologies, too, like, which is something I, I really wish I could get more into, but there's is too much to talk about, and I don't understand enough of these connections to properly share them with you. Still, if you're into this, I do highly recommend reading more. There's an absurd number of sources and further readings in my episode's description. But all in all, we have this really fascinating, possibly not explicit, but really coincidental, if not reference in Aristophanes to so many of these ideas that come up in explicitly Orphic theologies a couple hundred years later. There's so much going on. Does it make sense? This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. probably go on and on about these fragmentary theogonies for the rest of this episode if I really wanted to, but I also want to make sure we talk about both the Orphic hymns and the tablets that are often linked to the Orphic tradition. So let's leave the egg and incest-filled theogonies behind in favor of even more of this Orphic realm. But if you're interested in this or in the fannies more broadly, there really is so much you can read on the subject. It's really difficult to syncretize for a podcast like mine, but if you're just reading for the sake of it, oh, there's so much to learn. Still, I don't want to bog you down in too many fragments and theories. Plus, a lot of this is still based on philosophical ideas that I am just not familiar with enough to dive into them with you. But it seems that a huge, huge amount of what survives about the Orphic tradition survives in the similar way to that Hieronymus theogony. That is, survives because philosophers of a few hundreds of years later were talking about them in relation to their philosophy. So you have theories around sophist intervention in the tradition, Neoplatonists later studying it, students of Aristotle, and, and so much more. It really has implications in so many different realms of the ancient world without ever having any concrete, detailed roots. And that in itself is fucking fascinating and equally infuriating. But again, I'm going off topic because this shit is so wild. Back to the hymns and those tablets. In fact, let's start with the tablets. These so-called Orphic gold tablets are these little pieces of gold foil that have been found across the ancient Mediterranean. They have bits of poetry on them. In ancient Greek, ranging from just a couple of words to multiple lines of verse. They were called Orphic when they were first being found, which is fairly recently, because they seemed to connect to what was then known about the Orphic tradition, but it's pretty widely debated now whether these are explicitly Orphic at all or just utilizing some of the same ideas and stories, or rather really just one, Dionysus. It seems to me they're a huge part of what also connects the Orphic tradition to the underworld, along with Zagreus himself, even though they may not be Orphic at all. 
And as I mentioned before, the story of Zagreus doesn't seem to be a particularly central myth to the Orphic mythology broadly, beyond the fact that up until about a hundred or so years ago, it seemed to be their central myth. But that centrality mostly arose out of that misunderstood idea of the story, the idea of original sin that then convinced so many people that this tradition was some kind of like proto-Christianity when there is really zero evidence for that understanding. It's fucking fascinating because I don't seem to know any other word to use ever. Still, regardless of whether these tablets or gold pieces are Orphic or not, or whether the myth of Zagreus is central or not, even without the original sin idea, these little pieces of gold are so cool. I won't try to understand the complexities of their origins. That's for smarter people than me. But I do have bits of translations from them. This is from the Edmonds book that I listed in the episode's description where there's a translation of some of these little bits of gold that provide underworld instructions, quite literally. Things like, quote, You will find in the halls of Hades a spring on the left, and standing by it, a glowing white cypress tree. Do not approach this spring at all. You will find the other from the Lake of Memory, refreshing water flowing forth. But guardians are nearby. Say, I am the child of earth and starry heaven, but my race is heavenly, and this you know yourselves. But I am parched with thirst, and I perish, but give me quickly refreshing water flowing forth from the lake of memory. Isn't that beautiful? This is the idea behind most of them. They're little bits of gold that were found in graves, and they appear to be instructions for the dead what the person should do and not do when they get to the underworld. It's some of the most detailed real-life explanation for the afterlife that I've ever come across in Greek myth or Greek history. Like, real practical advice for after you die. They're just beautiful. I can't really get over how lovely that quote is. Like, it melds everything I love most, the mythology itself, and then how real people would have applied and believed in that mythology the practical use of it, and the gods, and the, to the very real people of the ancient Mediterranean. Understanding the, the meaning and the context of the gold tablets is, frankly, even more difficult than understanding the Orphic tradition broadly, and I don't want to lead you all astray, so I won't add much more on them. I just wanted to include them both because they're frequently called Orphic, even if that is very much debated, and... Because honestly, I just read that one translation. I fell so in love with that passage that I just had to include it. But as for anything more, I'm adding this to my list of things I would love to have scholars and experts come on my show to talk about. With any luck, I will bring you more on these in the future. I will leave you in this last episode, for now at least, on the Orphic tradition with the hymns, the most straightforward evidence we have for this wider Orphic realm. Now, when I say straightforward, I don't mean the history of them, but the surviving hymns themselves. The history, rather, is quite mysterious. Something new and different. This is the first sentence of the translation that I'm using for these hymns in its introduction. 
Quote, Antiquity is virtually silent on the Orphic hymns. What that means is we don't have reference to them at all until the 12th century CE when someone was writing about Hesiod's Theogony and mentioned this collection of Orphic hymns. Think about that math for a moment. That's like 18 to 1900 years after Hesiod's Theogony was likely composed and a good five to 600 years after even those Neoplatonists were writing about the other Theogony that I told you earlier. And even they were writing in a time when that region had already been overtaken by Christianity, relegating even the very late Orphic tradition to pagan obscurity. As for when the hymns were actually composed and written down, that's even trickier. There's no absolute answer, no consensus among scholars, but they're probably from somewhere in the first four centuries CE, when Greece was under control of Rome and if they're from the latter of those centuries, then we're talking about when Christianity was having its early beginnings. To frame the possible time for you, the Emperor Constantine solidified Christianity in Rome, and he lived in the 4th century CE. The hymns themselves are quite interesting. They're not like the Homeric hymns that tell long, beautiful, and even bizarrely funny stories of the gods that they're singing to, but rather they're much more explicitly religious as we think of religion now or, or worship. There are 87 of them, so we're not going through them all, but I've picked a few uniquely Orphic hymns and details to tell you about. So first, let's look at the hymn to Protogonos, to Fannies. It begins, quote, Upon two-natured Protogonos, great and ether-tossed I call, born of the egg, delighting in his golden wings, the begetter of blessed gods and mortal men, he bellows like a bull. This is how the hymns tend to go. As I said, they aren't stories like the Homeric hymns, but rather more like incantations, actual songs meant for worship purposes rather than any kind of like oral storytelling. The term two-natured, too, is another way of relaying this genderless quality or the non-binary or whatever kind of modern term we want to use. But regardless, its implication is that Fanny's protagonos is seen as both male and female or somewhere in between or nowhere near either. And there are multiple gods like this in the Orphic hymns. And, and since we love to remind the world that there have always, always been people who didn't fit into the binary, let's move on to another of those hymns. Mise is an Orphic deity that we know very little about, but what we do know is that she, or maybe they, also existed beyond the gender binary. Part of the hymn to Mise goes, quote, I call upon the sacred and holy, upon the ineffable queen Mise, whose twofold nature is male and female. This goddess is clearly connected with Dionysus, too, as he's mentioned throughout this hymn. And of course, as we well know, Dionysus is often depicted beyond the binary. Missae, though, seems to have some connections to the world beyond Greece. In this hymn, quote, With mother you partake of mystic rites in Phrygia. It's not mentioned in the translation that I'm reading, but I think this means that she has a connection to the goddess Cybele, a major earth goddess, mother goddess, from the region of Phrygia, which is basically like real life Troy. Cybele becomes very big during the Roman times as well, becoming associated with the other earth goddesses like Rhea and Demeter, and then moving west to become an important, important deity in Rome. 
Further references include this mother goddess Mise, quote, along Egypt's river with your divine mother, the revered and black-robed Isis. Because these hymns likely came from very late in the Orvic tradition, you get a real sense of how far it traveled beyond the traditional bounds of Greece. These poems could be from anywhere. They embrace so many different regions and deities of the ancient Mediterranean just as a whole. So, so many of these hymns are two gods who are, in essence, just like other versions of Dionysus. I can see why Dionysus becomes so well associated with this tradition from these hymns alone. That said, when we're talking this late in the ancient world, there's also a lot of added context around the cult of Dionysus that I don't have time to get too deep into, but generally... It seems that the later Orphic tradition might have in itself been a kind of resurgence of this cult of Dionysus, possibly making this really explicit connection to that god, maybe a later construct and not necessarily something that had always existed with the Orphics. Still... In these hymns, it's it's so explicit. We have hymns to Bacchus, Perichionios, mentions of Iacos, another name for Dionysus, to Semele, his mother, to Hypta, a woman named as the nurse of Bacchus, Dionysus, in fact. There are so many names of Dionysus. So there are so many deities that are associated with him or identified as versions of him that there's like a whole end note summarizing them. In this end note, we learn that Fanny's protogonos, can sometimes be identified with Dionysus. This goddess Mise, I mentioned, can be a more feminine version of him. And Dionysus himself, particularly when he's being called by the name Bacchus, has a whole slew of other names. Basarius, Lycnites, Perchionios, Irafiotes, Iacos, Lysios, Lenaios, the god of triennial feasts, Eubulius, Erechipaios, the god of annual feasts, and maybe even Sabos. Yeah. I've often mentioned the volume of names that Dionysus has in the more traditional Greek myths even, but add the Orphic into the mix and you've got a mess of possibilities. Gotta love that Dionysian deity. And honestly, I was almost going to leave this without mentioning that goddess Baobo that is in memes a lot and then I get those memes sent to me. And I, uh, for the longest time, up until last episode actually, was totally convinced that the reason I didn't know who she was was that she was Orphic, but actually it's because she's from the Eleusinian mysteries, it seems. So rather than really diving too deep, I'm just going to read her description on Theoi.com so that you can get the joke that's often in the memes and also just generally I will have answered this question. So Baobo is an Eleusinian demigoddess who presided over ribald humor practiced as part of the cult rites. She was an Eleusinian woman who made the grief-stricken Demeter laugh with her coarse jokes and exposed genitalia. That's what's always in the meme. I think she just lifted her skirt and showed off her vag to Demeter. Anyway, that's the whole of it. That was a quote from Theoi.com. <laughs> oh, where are we? If you want to learn more or read more of the Orphic hymns, there is a great translation listed in this episode's description, along with so many other sources for you to read if you want to learn more. It's really a wild and I don't even know. It's so many things, (laughs) this tradition. But I will, for now, leave it behind. 
just know there is a hell of a lot of Dionysus tucked into those 87 Orphic hymns. Oh, nerds, nerds, nerds. Thank you all so much for listening to this. I thought this one was going to be more understandable than the first one, and I think I was wrong. I really had no idea where these episodes on the Orphic tradition would take me, and I don't think I could have ever imagined how much content I would have put out, in addition to how much I just don't even have the time or expertise to get into more content, how utterly baffling it all is. There's just, it's, there's so much, and it's just so confusing. One thing I wish I could have gotten into more, but I just don't have the necessary sourcing or time, is the connections to those Eastern mythologies. So instead of going into too much detail, I just want to really emphasize how much of the Orphic tradition appears to have roots in mythologies of people to the east of Greece. While the Orphic mythologies became popular in the Greek world fairly late in the grand scheme of ancient Greece and its mythology, it has these very, very ancient origins in the cultures east. And, and many of them, many of those cultures, from, from Babylon to Phoenician mythology, even to regions as far as modern India. In fact, the epic poem, the Dionysiaca, that I used to cover Zagreus last week, it's the source we have for a journey Dionysus made from India, a war he had in India. And it's a great example of just how large the ancient world actually was, how far the Greeks had traveled by that point, how much they knew about people so far from their homeland. It's pretty incredible. So much of Greek myth has origins in people to the east, but it seems like the Orphic tradition really took that up a notch, which makes sense because by the time the Orphic tradition was picking up steam, they had already made it to India through Alexander the Great. And because of that, there were so many more cultures to interact with and to learn stories from. It's just another reminder that ancient Greece didn't exist in a vacuum and in fact was hugely influenced by people who had been around for a lot longer, had their own distinct and brilliantly cool cultures that the Greeks learned from and borrowed from. But those people weren't what we would now call white and thus rarely get the credit they deserve. And, well, I forgot to read five-star reviews over the past two weeks because I got so damn caught up in the realm of Orphic everything that instead I wrote over 12,000 words across two episodes, like the masochist that I am. So here's one now, because I truly love you all for these reviews, and I read every single one of them. Also, I got a one-star review this week from a guy who probably listened to three episodes and then decided I don't give historical context. It's a particularly laughable complaint, given the past few weeks of nearly constant historical context, but here we are. Do you want to offset his absolutely nonsensical complaint? Please leave me a five-star rating and review on Apple, and I will love you forever. For now, here's one from the States by a user named Hulk Carr, titled, She's Live and She Loves This Stuff. That's in parentheses. I only recently, about three weeks ago, learned of this podcast and started listening from the first episode. I'm now on episode 70, so I guess you could say I'm hooked. I have loved Greek and other mythology since I was a young boy back in the early 1960s when I first learned to read. And I have to say that Liv Albert does these tales fair justice. She does look at things from a modern feminist perspective, so if that annoys you, as it seems to have some early listeners, you might just want to find a different podcast. But if you open your mind to different ways 
ways of thinking, you might well enjoy this as much as I do. I have quite a lot of episodes to go to catch up on the most recent ones, but I plan to do that. I'm Halkar, and I love this stuff. Okay, that one was so sweet. I actually hadn't read the full thing before recording this because I missed half of it, and it was lovely. So thank you. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, but specifically rocked the Orphic research and helped me out so damn much. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. I am Liv and I love this shit, even when that shit is Orphic. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com.